0: You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City.
1: All right, so this is uh, called the Word of the Cross. And uh, the idea here is that Jesus is the Word made flesh. And if he is speaking, then one of the main things that he spoke was through the cross. And so as we look at the cross, we can see virtually everything that God wants to say to us by looking at different ways and different angles at the cross. It's like, uh, you know, many rivers leading into the same ocean and and all of that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of, uh, like, different perspectives on what the cross is supposed to mean to us. And, you know, I've tried to to really give uh, some honest consideration to some of the perspectives that I find strange. And I found that they seem to be trying to reconcile kind of a, historical Jesus kind of ideas, and then like threading the needle through some, uh, you know, they, they they don't like biblical or, or traditional ideas about the wrath of God, and then they're trying to thread the needle. And so some of it just seems like we're trying to thread through too many needles through too many human presuppositions instead of looking fearlessly at what the scriptures are actually saying to us. And I think that if we'll let the scriptures speak even though our first reaction is fear, that we will find wonderful truth at the back of those. So the whole uh, project here is to step back and to see the cross with fresh eyes. All right? So we were going to sing a song, and I was going to start with this next slide. Um, But one of the main things that the cross of Christ speaks is it speaks that God loves us. You know, uh, just like we have First John 4.10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, <clears throat> well, have you ever wondered why um, the suffering of Christ is called the passion? <clears throat> it, it's because he has thrown away every other option except to die for us. There's nothing left on the table except he's, he's just thrown every other option away except to redeem us, right? So this is a, a, a widely known in scripture as an expression of love toward the church, right? And, and he didn't just say he loves us. He demonstrated love in the most sacrificial way possible by coming, living among us, and then going to the cross and dying for us. So you can always look to the cross and say, have I crossed the line? Does he still love me? The cross says, yes. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he loves me. He has a tremendous love. He has a sacrificial, throw away everything, reckless abandon, no holds barred love for us. So that's one of the beautiful things the cross is speaking to us. Now the word of the cross, and you know, I want to go back to that. I want to start with this idea too because everything else I say is all predicated on the fact that no matter how theologically out there you get or how abstruse a concept gets or whatever else we're saying, the root of all of it it's that God loves us, and the main message of the cross is that we are beloved. Yeah, so that's awesome. That's really, really great news. Um, all right. So, <clears throat> you know, if you if we step back and look at uh, the uh, example of the early church, you look at the the Corinthian church. They were a horrible morass of of sexual immorality, they were suing each other, they were, um, in a kind of fleshly way, obsessed with the spiritual gifts, Um, they were quibbling and quarreling over uh, minor theological issues. They, They were a complete mess. If anyone thinks that we should go back and look at the early church and do church the way the early church does it, they're definitely not thinking about the Corinthian church, right? And so Paul, and, and, and I have to say, the Corinthian church sounds like a lot like my church, right? <laughs> but so you, you go and you look, and what is Paul saying to the Corinthian church? He, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he says to them, for I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So it is remarkable that he's coming to this group of people that are so carnal and such a mess. And he knows all about it. And to him, the main thing he wants to impart to them isn't, you guys need to clean your act up. The main thing he wants to impart to them is the word of the cross. Amazing. Um, And, you know... I want to contrast that with a, there was a, a popular book and I, I don't mean to denigrate the book but I'm going to do it anyway. The uh, There was a popular book going around called There's a Hole in Our Gospel a few years back. Um, it was uh, this guy that was he had been some kind of corporate you know, uh, CEO and then he became the head of uh, uh, World Vision and, and his book was basically saying there's a hole in our gospel because you know we're not going to Africa and feeding all the orphans and taking care of all the widows all over and sacrificing. And you should feel bad about eating French fries because, you know, for the cost of the French fries, you can feed a village, you know, and, and, and this kind of thing. <clears throat> and there's a lot of that thinking going along. Well, that's not the gospel. That is a heap of steaming pile of guilt. You know, the, the gospel that we're missing is the cross of Christ. I grew up in churches where I never heard any of this really explained or centered on or preached uh, like ever, much less was it week to week to week, something that we kept going back to as something that the pastor was determined to know nothing among us except Christ and him crucified because they were scared that that wasn't really the thing that we needed. They were scared to get too theological and scare everybody off. But the truth is, this is the main message of the church. This is the main thing the church has to offer the world, is Christ and him crucified. And, you know, we want to explore why. Now, the word that uh, was in the beginning was with God and was God, with God and was God. There's a unity and a division. We get all of our ideas about the Trinity from that. And then the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. An amazing truth, the incarnation. Shocking, really. Startling. Um, A lot of people stumble on that. Well, my hypothesis or my, my idea here is that the thing that the Word made flesh did was be crucified. And that was his main, if God were to write with his finger on the fabric of human history, the thing he wrote was the cross, right? Uh, so it, it really behooves us, as he says in, in Hebrews, that we give far more attention to so great a salvation. So that's what we're doing here. <clears throat> All right. All um, right. So I want to take a quick look at Isaiah 118, one of my favorite verses. It says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your center is scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Um, You know, wouldn't it be great if you could have this open conversation with God like that? What would he talk to you about? You know, if you did have a conversation like that with God, how would you know it was really God talking to you? How do we have this kind of relationship where we're actually reasoning together with God, where we say, you know, God, I don't know about that. And he answers and says, well, I appreciate your skepticism. Here is the answer. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a real conversation with God directly on that level about that? Well, how, can, how can we be sure? How do we, how do we have that conversation with God? God has given us the conversation in the cross, because look at this verse. He says, come now and let us reason together. And then what is it that the Lord wants to reason with us about? Our sins. He says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. The thing he wants to reason with us about is our own feelings, uh, justified feelings of incredibly deep inadequacy of coming before God himself. You know, if you imagine really coming before God, and this is going to really happen for each of us. We're gonna come before God and here we will be in the presence of the one who can speak and universes happen, of the one who can speak in a world that's teeming with life, of the one who is at once the, the seat of ancient knowledge and yet has this childlike wonder and emanates perfect love and we will be undone completely undone by that. And we will understand that our sins are as scarlet, and our one longing will be that our sins will be white as snow. And unbelievably, this is the main thing that God has spoken toward or into in our lives in the cross, that we can have confidence to go into the Holy of Holies and experience the presence of the living, genuine, real God. Awesome stuff. All right, so one of the things that the cross of Christ declares is that God takes the initiative. What am I talking about? Um, In his book, uh, uh, Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey points out that at the time of Christ, that they were imminently expecting the Messiah to appear, but they were expecting a certain kind of Messiah. They wanted a conquering hero to appear to liberate them from the Romans and to set up the Jewish state. They wanted a king. And here comes the actual Messiah, and he's just this quiet, gentle, healing guy that goes around and speaks in riddles and kind of heals people out in the desert. And it isn't what they wanted, it isn't what they expected, and it certainly didn't seem to fit the bill that they were watching for. And so there was a tremendous amount of disappointment there. And why do I bring that up? I'll tell you why. Because the ministry and life, and certainly the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not anything that anyone at that time invented. Nobody made that up, nobody would think of it. If I was to say, hey, I'm gonna invent a new religion, so I'm going to invent a a gentle healing guy that speaks in riddles, but I think it would be awesome if his main act would be to die on a cross. You're like, you're crazy, nobody's gonna wanna follow that religion. That will will totally fail, you know? But, But let's put it like this. No one would ever think of that. This is completely the work of God. If you think about it, it is an offense to all human thinking to say the highest revelation of God is expressed in a human sacrifice. And to say something... Even worse to say, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you can't be his disciple. Just like they would say at the time. Imagine saying that, and he, he said those words to this group of Jews. It was so anathema, it was so scandalously horrible. Hey, and it cleared the room. All of them left except the 12. And it's like, Are you going to leave too? It's like, We would but there's nowhere else to go, (laughs) right? And and it really points out, no one made this up. No one would make this the basis of any kind of success. All the other religions you think of, like I was thinking uh, where we live in Bellingham, every story going there's this big fat smiling Buddha, right? He's fat, he doesn't care, he's happy and joyful and smiling, that's that's an awesome God, right? He's got joy. Well, this, we have a cross at the center of our faith. That's not happy. Who would make that up? Well, what we really see is that this is the very fingerprint of God. Because no one would make it up. Because this is something that only... It's like God sat around for like the first two or three eternities, thinking up a universe in a world where he could set up a completely and utterly scandalous situation where it would require raw faith to believe it, to receive it, to say, this is God. There, there's no, it's a complete and total offense. So if you believe this, the shocking idea that the cross is, is speaking God's word to us that you are buying into the fact that God has taken the initiative you didn't make it up nobody else made it up this is the fingerprint of God right I think that's an awesome point here's another thing the cross declares the cross of Christ declares that God understands my suffering all right <clears throat> Now first I want to speak to what our worst problem is. Um, Let's suppose that uh, someone, a, a woman is walking down the street, carrying her purse, and then some maniac comes along with a machete and he cuts off her arm and steals her purse, all right? So they collect her arm, they race her to the hospital, they sew her arm back on, she gets flowers her mother flies out everyone's crying she gets all these visitors sympathy cards presents all of the stuff everyone can't believe it right but what about the guy that cut her arm off the the machete wielding maniac does anyone have sympathy for that guy his mother doesn't send him flowers His mother probably doesn't even want to acknowledge that she's his mother. He is a guilty dog in prison completely alone. But what's worse than that is he actually has to bear the weight of guilt of being an arm hacker, right? So what am I saying here is that there's many things that happen to us that cause suffering in our lives, but the worst suffering is the evil we choose. The worst suffering is when we violate our own conscience because our own conscience is closer to us than any other suffering we could possibly endure. It it indicates not just that we suffer, but that we are flawed, sinful, truly bad individuals. And that's a heavy weight to bear. So, the cross of Christ addresses that, but it also says that that Jesus has been made like his brethren. Um, This is in Hebrews 2, it says, um, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So God just doesn't sit up in heaven apart from us and let us suffer and say, you know, consider it all joy. Where's your joy, brother? Where's your joy, sister? Right? He says, I get it. Because I have suffered. For example, here's an idea I'll throw out there. You know, people talk about the fatherhood of God and what a beautiful thing that is. But a lot of people had a very bad father, an absent father, a father who was neglectful or, or even abusive or harmful. And so they say, I can't identify with God being my father. It's not a helpful idea for me. It doesn't work. And you know what the cross says to that? I get that. Because Jesus, in his hour of greatest need, at the cross, said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So he knows what it's like for his father to not be there for him in his worst moment. This is an important dynamic. It says that Jesus knows what it's like when your father isn't there for you. Does that mean that the father was imperfect toward Jesus? No, it's just one of the things that the cross is able to speak to in your suffering. If you had an imperfect childhood, you know what? He kinda gets it. Does that jive with you? I think it's beautiful. He knows, he can sympathize with that. Um, here's another example. Let's suppose, you know, you're going through some kind of real trouble. Like, we, we have people in our lives that they're going through real trouble, financially, to the point where they actually become homeless. Like, really? Like, thrown out on the street, what are they gonna do, homeless? And, you know, it's not like they, they didn't pray and ask and wonder what to do, and the circumstances have converged, and God didn't come through. And, or their baby didn't get saved, which we've gotten, we've been through. And you know what? Jesus, in his hour of his greatest need, didn't have any help. No cavalry came along and saved him. No miracle happened. He actually was crucified and he actually died. It all came to pass. The resurrection came three days too late to save him from that suffering, right? And we can identify with that because many times we desperately pray for desperate, genuine needs. I grew up with severe asthma. I almost died numerous times And um, my fondest wish was just to be able to breathe. And I would pray and pray. And I was just like, God, I think I'm going to die. And it's so panic-stricken. And and you know what? He, He did come through with that. And I'm much better today. But you know what? He knows what it means for there to be unanswered, desperate prayers in your life. Jesus understands that. And so the cross says he has tremendous... Sympathy that he has learned from his experience with us. So God just doesn't declare that he has ministry from on high. He has experienced things which have borne real sympathy with us in our genuine suffering. You know, isn't that wonderful? I would much rather have a God who understands that. You know, beautiful. I think that's so beautiful. Okay, this one's real important. Um, a lot of the, I think, kind of ideas I disagree with on, on the atonement are, are born out of a misunderstanding of, of this point. The cross of Christ declares that God has wrath against sin. Um, so just to get started with this, it, it, you, guys, you guys don't ever like Netflix binge, do you? <laughs> Because you shouldn't. It's not good. I know. But, you know, we were on a Netflix binge, the whole family, really, watching Chuck. I love that show. It's so funny, right? So one of the episodes, if you can see, is that Chuck's girlfriend, Sarah, um, was, Chuck was this kind of spy character, if you don't know the show, and he had gotten kidnapped and he was somewhere in Thailand. Um, And so she was furious, and she's the highly trained CIA operative that actually knows how to handle herself, right? So she goes on a rampage through Thailand and then, you know, apparently there's word that this uh, blonde she monster is on the rampage, you know, through Thailand trying to find him. So there's this whole scene where she's just like kicking ass, just you know, crazy, and of course she finally finds him and rescues him and it's it's great. but why did she have such wrath? Because she loved Chuck, right? That, that was her, her she, she saw her life together with him. They were in love and he got kidnapped and she was kicking ass because she loved him. And that is the way I think to understand the wrath of God. A lot of times the reason why we reject a strong view of the wrath of God is because we try to pit the idea of wrath against the idea of love. And we say, you know, how can God be a God of wrath if he's a God of love? Well, he has to be a God of wrath if he's a God of love. If he doesn't have wrath, that means he doesn't really care, right? There's a difference between an absent-minded grandmother patting a kid on the head and saying, I love you, you know, now go home, you know in, in in someone who is deeply vested in the interests of that child, right well, I, I have four boys, and whenever something would happen at the school where somebody was accusing them or something or there was some kind of drama going on, and they were at the middle of it, I was an angry bear. I didn't want anybody doing anything that would harm my kid or harm my kid's reputation, right so I'm like. I want to get to the bottom of this, I want to get to the bottom of this now because I'm mad as hell, you know? It's because I love him. And, it, and, and now that they're older, you know, I don't want my son doing things himself that jeopardize his future and harm himself. So when he's doing things that are sinful and wrong, I get upset. Do I get upset because I hate him? No, of course not. I'm deeply upset because I long for his best. I I am concerned for his welfare. So yeah, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to just stand by and watch my son destroy himself, right? Okay, well, God deeply, genuinely, in ways we could never understand it, deeply cares for us. And there is no way... He's going to stand by idly and dispassionately and let us just destroy ourselves. He has wrath. And, you know, I think that we should understand that in every sense of the word. It's not just reverent respect. It means he's angry as hell. He's not going to just stand by and let us destroy ourselves. And it's because he loves us. It's a sign that he really, really cares about us. Right? So, Mm -mm. he's incensed that we're harmed he's furious at the injustice of everything he's not going to stand it he you know when, when, when children die of cancer god hates it when powerful and rich men trample on the rights of others and get away with it he hates it and i'm not just saying that politically whenever that happens he hates it he hates when good men die in warfare. He hates when children are made orphans and neglected. He hates when women get abused. I feel that. We have a girl in our congregation that's getting beaten by her boyfriend. I'm so mad about that. I can't imagine if God is a God of love that he's not furious about that. Right? <clears throat> um, he hates that people are eaten up with destructive addictions. We have other people in our congregation that are fighting terrible addictions to drugs and alcohol. And it is ruining them. It prevents them from so many opportunities to, in in simple ways, just prosper and have a normal job and have have a, a, a normal roof over their head. And I'm so mad about it. But my anger is nothing compared to God's anger. So you know what? I think we need to stop sweeping this one under the rug. I think we need to bring the wrath of God out and put it on display where it belongs, and say, "This is beautiful because it means He really, honestly, actually cares." Now, how does the how does the cross of Christ speak the wrath of God? <clears throat> um, there's a verse in uh, Isaiah that says that that God was pleased to crush him if he would render himself a guilt offering. God was pleased to crush his son? He was pleased because it took him finding the most precious thing that he could find, which is his son, and to say, my wrath and my love for the world is so huge and so real and my wrath against the way everybody's destroying themselves is so great that this is my show so it is a tremendous demonstration of the wrath of god right okay you guys with me all right okay which leads us to this um I want to talk a little bit about justice, the purpose of punishment, and the atonement. And we're getting toward the end here. It's been a long day. Um, you know, if you were to go ziplining, anyone here ever gone ziplining? You have? Okay, when you're about to like strap yourself into that thing and get on the zipline, do you want the zipline to be just barely, barely enough to bear your weight? Or do you want it to be, like, way too thick and way too strong so there is absolutely no question that it can bear your weight? Right? Because it's scary, right? So you want to be assured that the thing is way stronger than it needs to be so it can bear your weight. Our ideas about the atonement need to be the same way. They need to not assume, you know what, it's like this. I talk to people sometimes and their idea about how to relate to God is that when they're at their best and when they're behaving well and they've been having quiet times and they haven't been sinning, you know, and, and whatever their idea of that is, then God is pleased. But if they haven't been doing that, they kind of slink away from church and they kind of think that God sort of hates them somehow. And there's this slinkiness to their persona, right? And And... So their idea is like having this barely good enough zip line to carry you. And what I always try to tell them is like, here's the gospel. God doesn't love you only at your best. He does love you then. He loves you at your worst. He loves you when you most don't deserve love. He finds that place and says, here is where I love you. Here is where I carry you. Here is where you're supported. Here's where forgiveness is proven. If he only forgives you of things you don't need forgiveness for, what, what, that's not even forgiveness. What is that, right? If he will if he, if forgive you for everything except the besetting sin that you actually are struggling with and actually need forgiveness for, then what good is that? I need forgiveness for the things that I need forgiveness for. It seems obvious, right? Okay, well, our idea of the atonement needs to be like the thick zip line that that can carry the day. So we're gonna look at it that way. So there's some, uh, I'm gonna race through some of these, but... um, Here's some ideas about what, how, how in just not in religious terms, but in kind of societal terms, how to achieve justice. Um, let's suppose somebody has done some criminal activity and they're in prison. What is the purpose of them being in prison? Well, one idea is that it's just simply incapacitation. If you're a felon and you're in prison, you can't do any more crime because you're incapacitated, right? Here's another idea, deterrence. If there is the the threat of being imprisoned over your head, perhaps you won't do the crime, right? So that's another theory. Another theory is restitution. You've done this crime, and you need to um, perform restitution to the state to make up for what you did. Okay? So there's that. Um, There's the idea of justice as a rehabilitation, that... Um, If you are caught and you go to prison, then justice means that you go into programs and you become rehabilitated so you won't do those crimes again. Well, the secret with that one is that's really just conditional acceptance, isn't it? That's not really justice, right? But what about this one, retribution? The felon has harmed society, therefore society is entitled to inflict harm in return. What a terrible idea of justice. I hate retribution because it just says, if you do something wrong, then there's just this mystical kind of relationship to it that says you should be punished. But this is the ideal basis for the justification of the gospel because it's the worst case scenario because what it means is if you did something wrong it doesn't matter what you do to make up for it it doesn't matter how you've been rehabilitated it matters that you receive just punishment that's how retribution works and, and let me illustrate why you, yourself, really believe that idea. You believe mostly in retribution. You don't know it, but you will after you hear this, okay? Let's suppose somebody is a murderer, and they get caught. And so they drag him into the courtroom, and here's the bereaved family glaring at this dude, the murderer, right? And, and, and it's conclusive. He really did it, okay? Okay. So he comes into the courtroom, and he says, well, I repented. I I swear I'll never murder anyone else. Can you imagine? Nobody cares if you repent of murder, because you can't bring that person back to life by repenting of that, right? Or they say, you know, if I'll go into this program you can rehabilitate me and then I'll never murder anyone again. It's like, we don't care. You murdered our family member. We're not gonna let you get away with that. There's no way you should get away with that. We don't care about deterrence. We don't care about incapacitation. We don't care if the guy gets rehabilitated. We care that he gets what's coming to him, right? Okay, now, Let's suppose that God believes in retribution too. This is our big fear. You catching that? Because sin is all like that. Just because you did it 10 years ago doesn't mean you're not guilty. When it where did that idea come from? Right? We're guilty. And and God isn't gonna let any injustice just go. And so the gospel is addressing the worst case scenario of justice, which is retribution. Because you can't just say, from now on, I'm going to repent and then God will be good with me. You are writing a script onto God's justice that isn't true. You catching me? So the gospel is addressing that. The gospel is powerful because it addresses our worst case fears about how God might judge us. Isn't that awesome? Right? I don't want to just know that I can be incapacitated and God will be okay with that. Like he'll just take me out and kill me if I and then that's my that's my salvation, right? I want to know when I am facing God at the judgment seat of Christ that the blood of Jesus has really justified me. That I am genuinely going to be okay. I need to know that it addresses the problem of retribution. Right, you with me? So I think this is a wonderful, I could say a lot more about that, but I think that's a wonderful point. Here's another thing the cross of Christ declares. The cross of Christ declares the ultimate law. Um, Hebrews twelve three and four says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. All right. So here's Jesus. He's getting crucified and he's breathing prayers to forgive them as he's being crucified. And then here's me. I am cursing the person that ate the last cookie and left the cookie container empty, sitting in the cabinet. (laughs) Right? That's me. I have not yet attained to this righteousness. So if you're ever thinking like, you know, we have all this talk about the law, and what is the law? Is the law this? Is the law this? If you are in his Paul... Talk. It was great about that, right? All these swirling ideas about the extent of, of the law and what we've really been uh, you know, saved from and everything. Well, you know what? The real expression of law is the cross. If you're not this perfect, then you've fallen short of the glory of God. If you won't obey God, no matter what, to the point of death, then you're not obeying God. You're still serving idols. That's just the way it is. So you know what? Is there any doubt in anyone's mind? We can go through all these Pauline texts and all these things, but you know what? It's so simple. This cross is the ultimate standard of law. You're either willing to not have idols to the point of shedding blood and dying, or you're not. Right? It's real simple. Cuts it right down to the core issue. It's amazing, really. And I could go into some more details about that, but we're running out of time. Um, I love this one, which I'm going to go through really, really quickly. Um, The cross of Christ declares the gift of God. The ultimate, the best kind of gift, and we're talking in just normal human terms, not religious terms. Right? Just think a a, a birthday present or a Christmas present. Um, A great gift is costly if it's cheap who wants it right you know it it has to be costly because that means that you mean something to them it needs to be appropriate and it needs to be surprising so I'm going to play this tiny little clip if you can hear it I don't know if you can hear this maybe you can um, from the Simpsons Simpson, happy birthday to you
0: <laughs> oh, don't worry this frosting will come right off you isn't she well it's hard for me to judge since I've never bowled in my life well if you don't want it I
1: know someone who does like <laughs> <laughs> it says Homer on there <laughs> Okay, not an appropriate gift, right? <laughs> um, and, and so the, also the best gift is a surprise, right? You weren't expecting this, and, it, and, and, it, and it's almost a, a paradox. How can it be appropriate and surprising? How does the cross fulfill these ideals of a gift? Costly? It cost him his life. Appropriate? It speaks to our deepest need for justification, to our worst problem, which is not just the suffering that happens to us, but our guilt. And it is completely surprising because no one in the human race ever saw that God would become incarnate and would himself take on our guilt and die for us. I mean, could anybody have possibly expected, it's so fantastical that nobody would ever expect it. The, The, nobody that was watching for the Messiah at the time that were experts in these things could possibly expect it. It offended them. So yeah, it's costly. It's appropriate. It's a surprising, and it's a free gift. A free gift. You you have to do nothing and earn nothing. You don't need to deserve it. You know, it's the free gift of God. Paul emphasizes the idea of it being a free gift. I think at least 15 times in the book of Romans between chapter 3 and chapter 6. It's a free gift. All right, we're down to the last couple of slides here. This one is really heavy, but I really like this one. The cross of Christ declares God's answer to the problem of evil. The problem of evil is God exists, God is all-powerful, God is loving, and evil exists. So if God exists, and God is all-powerful, and God is loving, how can there be evil? Right? <clears throat> the cheap answer to that is atheism. Well, there's no God. Problem solved. But <clears throat> it's not a good answer, because how do you explain that we exist? It's like the Babylon B, you know, uh, uh you know, the fake uh, news Christian news article site um, that said, uh, you know, atheists want proof for God besides existence of entire universe, (laughs) right? So it's not a good answer. It's just a cheap answer. And when you talk to real atheists, this is is what they bring up, really. It's like, well, there's children that have cancer, so how can there, there be a God? My answer is, okay, so why don't you go to the dying child And tell them, you know, you're just a random assortment of matter and energy that happened in a random universe. And your only value is in the perpetuation of the species. And so since you're going to die, your life is of no consequence anyway. So get over it. Right? There's your comfort. What comfort is that? You know... The thing is, is that Christianity does not shy away from the question of the problem of evil. Christianity is the answer to the problem of evil. You know, it puts a symbol of suffering and death at the center of the faith. Have you ever thought about that? What a strange thing to have as the symbol of our faith to be the cross, we, we feel this on Good Friday. We're, we're celebrating the death of our Savior. Are we supposed to be happy? Or are we supposed to be mournful? Both? We're supposed to be stuck in this weird quandary about what to feel about that. Right? <clears throat> um, it's the, the The word of the cross, though, is that it was tremendously evil. If you think about it, If a president or a king gets killed, that's really, really a a national tragedy. It's an international tragedy. But we're talking about the Messiah who was prophesied for thousands of years and was the only Messiah to come, and he was crucified and rejected. Okay, this is the greatest evil. It's a terrible evil. But what happened was God didn't just use the resurrection, he used the cross to, to, to achieve the salvation of all of mankind. So we can see that since Jesus is the exact representation of the radiance and glory of God, which is Hebrews 1, this is the way God is. The cross is speaking that God can take your worst circumstances Even the ones that we see through the book of Jonah, the ones that you got yourself into, they're your fault. And he can take that and turn it around and cause all things to work together for good. Just like he did the cross. The cross is speaking that so loud. Isn't that awesome? All right. I mean, and that is the fastest I've ever gone through that material. (laughs) Last slide here. The cross of Christ, this is... This is going to blow your mind, I hope. Declares the death of God. Um, this is, uh, this, uh, uh, I think he's a uh, Czechoslovakian or Romanian philosopher named uh, Slavoj Zizek. Um, has a movie that uh, he's talking about these different movies and giving his commentary. And he had this whole commentary on the movie The Last Temptation of Christ. And so I'm going to read a little what he said. He said, I think one can read the Christian gesture in a much more radical way. This is what the sequence of crucifixion in Scorsese's film shows us. What dies on the cross is precisely this guarantee of the big other. The message of Christianity here is radically atheist. It's the death of Christ. It's not any kind of redemption or commercial affair in the sense of Christ suffers to pay. See, I disagree with that, but pay to whom for what and so on. It's simply the disintegration of the God which guarantees the meaning of our lives. And that's the meaning of the famous phrase, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just before Christ's death, we get in what in psychoanalytic terms we call subjective destitution, stepping out totally of the domain of symbolic identification, canceling or suspending the entire field of symbolic authority, the entire field of the big other. Of course, we cannot know what God wants from us because there is no God. This is why I claim that the only way to, be, to really be an atheist is to go through Christianity. Okay, I'm not subscribing to this, so don't be too scared, but I'm gonna draw things from it. Christianity is much more atheist than the usual atheism, which can claim there is no God and so on, but nonetheless, it retains a certain trust into the big other. This again, that there is no big other, no point of reference which guarantees meaning. So what am I getting out of this? Here's what I'm getting out of this. In a way, when we come to Christ and we look at the cross, we see a man who was absolutely morally perfect and obeyed God the Father in every possible circumstance, perfectly There was no blemish. And what was his reward? The cross. That was his reward. And so what do we get from that? You cannot manipulate the blessing and favor of God through being good. You can't. And this is so deeply instilled in us. Because I don't care what you believe, if you believe in God in a Judeo-Christian sense, if you believe in God um, in in a more kind of uh, Hindu or Buddhist or kind of New Age sense, or if you're an atheist, you harbor the belief that there is a big other, that if you do right by that big other, you can manipulate circumstances to your favor. And when Christ died on the cross, that huge main idol of of humanity was killed. And we carry that idol in our highest notions of God. We carry that idol in our highest worship. Right? And what died is that whole idea that God is a God who can be manipulated by our good. Just like the guys that came and said, Lord, Lord, didn't we heal the sick and raise the dead and didn't we do all this good in and in your name yeah. and he says depart from me i never knew you why because they believed they could manipulate god by their behavior and god won't be manipulated that way god won't he it's not going to work In essence, what's happening there is you're saying that you are the God of God and that you can control God to your own benefit. And God is not going to be controlled that way. It doesn't work that way. Um, So I'm skipping stuff. I'm not gonna talk about the Gnostic root of modern society even though it's really good stuff. But that's manipulative virtue. But here's the takeaway, the wonderful takeaway of all of this. Jesus was perfectly virtuous and received the reward of the cross. So the ties have been severed between being good and being blessed. Well, that didn't work out so good for Jesus at the moment. But guess what? It works out great for us because we who deserve death are receiving eternal life. We who deserve death are receiving the blessing of God because the tie has been severed between a God who can be controlled. And one is Jesus' teaching about God now that if you work in the vineyard all day or if you work in the vineyard for five minutes, you're still getting everything. You're still getting everything. It's not based on deservedness. The idea that God bases his relationship with us on deservedness has been crucified. And our whole, that's what, I think that's what Paul means when he says we've been crucified with Christ. Our idea of a God who can be manipulated by our goodness has been crucified. And we're lost. I think a lot of people just need to actually become an atheist first before they can wrap their head around this you have to stop thinking that. If you really think that, that means you're defined not by the kind of person you are now, but by the love which God has for you. Isn't that beautiful? So remember, the main thing the cross of Christ is speaking is that you are greatly, recklessly, no holds barred, beloved, In the eyes of God. And there's nothing you can do to break it. There's nowhere you can hide that He won't go through that locked door and find you cowering away in fear and declare an awesome love for you. Amen? Amen.
0: Amen. (laughs) I remember this song years ago, and uh, I sang it at my, uh, uh, we lost uh, a baby. Uh, well, we've actually lost two babies um, in the womb uh, halfway through the pregnancy. Anyway, um, it's just so perfect with what he's been saying. And, and uh, so we don't have a piano, but I'm just going to do it cappella. Wait, but is this?
1: this uh, praise in the water. Oh, you know what? Can we do it at the piano out there? Will you guys come out there? Are they still out there? It is it horrible out of tune. I mean, it's yeah, like it's eye-watering. Yeah,
0: it would be really okay. so horrible.
1: Ah, uh, well, okay. Well, okay. go ahead, sweetheart. All
0: right acapella. Uh, But the words are just awesome. If y'all just, have you want to listen, close your eyes or or whatever. Hanging dead on a cross, what a hopeless and pointless loss. But now I can see the Master saying
1: That's it.